Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. When I look at the Richter paintings, the colors are saccharine, the colors are glarious, glaring, the colors are streak, striking. They are all things together, but they never resolute in a way that they reconcile you. They never give you the sense of being at home. So the material mediation that color performs is perpetually negated by Richter in the sense that he says, I will not give you a compensatory gratification by giving you chromatic satisfaction. He perpetually confronts you with the lie that chromatic satisfaction constitutes. That is what I call the opposite of beauty, namely enlightenment. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Benjamin Buchlow. Welcome to Dialogues. Today, we are taping, as you can tell, the last podcast of the season. We decided to go live. Uh, And we decided to go live for two extraordinary reasons. One, we're in this Richter show. Uh, And this Richter show has um, famously, maybe now, the last painting, the last painting that that Richter will paint. He has decided to stop painting. And we also have, at the same time, the arrival in the world of this book, which, um, not to be too crass about it, will be for sale after the talk, and Benjamin will sign it. Uh, But the convergence of these two things seem to mandate that we should gather in person. Um, So here we are we'll be discussing Gerhard Richter, Painting After the Subject of History, a 650-page book of essays written over a nearly 50-50-year period by one of our most influential art historians about one of our most trenchant artists. And I just want to point out that normally I do these podcasts in my closet, so the fact that I'm reading is not as visible to everyone. So this is behind the curtain. I don't sound this smart, just off the cuff. It's all written down. (laughs) Okay, but I thought I would begin by acknowledging and sketching the field of intimacies within which we sit right now. Um, I read somewhere, Benjamin, that you saw your first works of Gerhard Richter in the Rudolf Zwerner Gallery. I think the name says a lot. You have been writing and been friendly with Gerhard Richter for 50 years. I wrote a dissertation on Duchamp's ready-mades. And while I've never taken a class with you, you were its primary interlocutor. I wrote all 300 pages of those for you, with you in mind. I was desperate to change your mind about Duchamp. (laughs) I failed in that, but in writing for you, I wrote a smarter text than I ever could have written had you not been the audience. (laughs) I also arranged Louise Lawler's first museum show, as we call her, your baby mama. My what? Your baby mama. Really? She is your baby mama. She will always be your baby mama. I don't know that term, to be honest. (laughs) And the podcast has begun. (laughs) 
We also share, I think, Benjamin, a deep indebtedness to two people who I would like to name check. Rosalind Krauss, who is with us here this afternoon. And And Ron Clark, um, Ron offered you a, a very vital teaching post, and I benefited from Ron's, you know, the Whitney program in ways that I, I can't imagine my life without Rosalind and Ron, and I think your life is also kind of equally impossible without them. So in other words, the air is thick with love, and all of its attendant affiliations uh, and intimacies and obligations. So I just wanted to couch everything we'll do moving forward in that, um, in that spirit, because I feel quite, um, I don't know, it's, just, it's like, uh, I don't know if people make fesh rifts anymore, but like, for me, this is like a little bit of a fesh rift Thank for you. you. So I'm very, I'm really happy. Okay. Once a graduate student, always a graduate student. <laughs> I can never get old enough. Um, I have the unenviable and task and the privileged task of trying to sum up a little bit this 650-page book of yours. So I'm going to read a little bit before I ask my first question. In your staggering version, of Adorno's method of negative dialectics, by which I mean a method in which you articulate a set of oppositions that the paintings rock back and forth between. They're not quite antinomies as such, but rather stations along some kind of continuum or spectrum. And they run a list that goes something like this, memory and forgetting, representation and erasure, photography and painting, a memory image and the spectacle or the mass cultural image, the grand tradition of history painting and the banality of the photograph, the de-skilling of the abstract works and what you call, quote, the exceptional rarity and singularity of the pictures of Richter's family. You argue that Richter's work is a working through of a variety of profound losses or failures. The staggering loss of life of the Holocaust and of World War II in total, the loss of the Enlightenment as a kind of beacon of ethics in favor of a, the new world order we live in right now, which is our ethics are rooted in mutual destruction a loss of or failure of utopian ideals, the loss of the role of the avant-garde, the loss of a unified Germany, the loss or failure of the idea of the nation state as a whole, the loss of the distinction between public and private, the loss of collective memory, and the loss or failure of criticism, all of which somehow come to a head in the loss or death or failure of painting to quote, as I'm quoting you, every time I quote, I quote you, articulate or mediate subjective experience. And I came away from the book in a way thinking that for you, for Benjamin, Richter inhabits a kind of dead form in a way that makes many of the antinomies I listed earlier to be not so much oppositions, but what you call they have inextricable interdependencies. Hence, you can ask, and now we can ask, of Richter's very famous painting, Emma, which is the nude woman descending the staircase. Uh, this is the first image that Richter paints of using his own photograph. It's a photograph of his first wife, who is at that time pregnant with their first child, Richter's first child. So you can say of a painting like that, you ask, is Richter trying to resurrect the erratic nude or ironize the genre in the face of its demise? Or you can say, and I quote, the photograph can never become the memory image 
because it is always the afterlife of forgetting. Meaning that I think for you, Benjamin Richter's project is partly to see, quote, if under the advancing conditions of reification and alienation, a memory image can even exist. And for those of you who have forgotten what reification means, it is to make thing-like, to take something alive and to render it uh, like a thing or an object. And that perhaps further from the, this deep problem of the memory image, um, that Richter's oeuvre is a, both a complex form of mourning, a kind of working through of all of these losses and failures, and a form of melancholia, which is the being stuck in all of these losses and failures with regards to the loss and or failure of easel painting as a kind of uh, signifier of the Western intellectual and aesthetic tradition. So my first question, I've written the questions down. Benjamin does not know what they are. So within this dialectical framework of Richter's pictures that you've given us, I want to ask you the following question, which I, I fear some people may take as contentious, but I ask it instead plaintively. <laughs> what do we do with their beauty? Um, what do we do about the deep, profound visual pleasure that we appear to take from Richter's oeuvre? Is their beauty and its visual pleasure merely a given, an etantone, or such that it doesn't even require commentary? Is it a strategy that allows him to do all of these mourning and melancholias? I think, I mean, I'm assuming you accept that part of the deep DNA of art, and particularly painting in the West, is to make beauty, to make beautiful objects. So where then is beauty's dialectical other? Uh, what do we do with this ravishing technique of the blur that he uses in some of his most devastating images? Uncle Rudy, the Bader-Meinhof group. Richter never zigs and zags into the abject or, or the ugly. And I guess I just want to ask you, after spending all this time with the work, do you have an account either of what Richter finds beautiful about them, if you find anything beautiful about them, and why the rest of us keep showing up for how beautiful they are, the extraordinary pleasure that they give us? OK. Um, thank you for a wonderful introduction. Um, I have to reciprocate at least a little bit, saying uh, part object, part sculpture is one of the most important books on the subject. Thank you. Did and it change your mind? Did no, I add I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. It still is. <laughs> and the Black Mountain exhibition was one of the most extraordinary exhibitions of the last 10 years. So I do have to say that in not out of sheer formality, but I really owe you the occasion mandates that. The other statement I would like to say, following what you in, introduced, are there two people, if you would ask me in the middle of the night, who formed me in many ways. One is a person who formed me or told me, taught me how to see works and art when I came rather ignorantly and uh, uh, unformed after a long hiatus to Cologne. That was Rudolf Zwirner. So he taught me how to see in a way that no art historian in the university ever taught me how to see. And the other person, since that is really necessary, who taught me how to see and to think and to write was Rosalind Krauss. So um, it was reading her book, Passages, 
which made me decide to move to America. Mm. Because at that time in Europe, and certainly at that time in Germany, there was not a single art historian. It sounds unbelievable, but it's true. There was not a single art historian who wrote on that history, on those practices, and let alone developing those theoretical models that are the most extraordinary models to think about out of the post-45 period. So that literally was a triggering moment for me to say, okay, I want to go live, work, and study where people work like this. So there were other reasons to go, but that was a key motivation. Anyway, so then you throw at me the question of beauty, which is, of course, the most unfair question you can <laughs> give me. And um, I duck whenever people say that, because... Mm. Um, and this is the most extraordinarily beautiful Richter exhibition one can imagine, so all the more reason to speak about it. But I do not use that term, I neither don't... in my thinking, nor in my night's sleep, nor in my writing, ever. It's I don't almost... think you can... It's I'm not... not sure it ever appears in no, the book. No, it's not. It won't. <laughs> Benjamin, I think you know that this is called a structuring absence. <laughs> okay. All right, so just walking through this exhibition today for an hour before we started, I, with Michelle, we just went through this. We've seen many of those paintings in Dresden and in the studio. Some of them I'd never seen before. And this one in particular, I said, I cannot believe this. Like, this is like a painting that is almost like the most majestic answer to Jasper Johns that one can imagine. Um, whom Richter interestingly loathes, if I may be so indiscreet. Right? So that is a great figure that he cannot cope with, he cannot deal with it. And uh, I'm not saying it's an intentional, but precisely the question, what do you do when you apply facture, structure, paint, chroma together in the way he does? And what are the motivations for him to do so? And this is where the question of beauty comes in. Um, Color is, of course, the most seductive element of experiencing beauty. And people would say, yes, partially those paintings are so extraordinary because they remind us of Monet's late work, and isn't that beautiful? Well, you know very well that Monet's late work was dismissed for the longest time because people said he was blind, he didn't know what he was doing, they let the painting stand in the studio, and it was raining upon, as Ellsworth Kelly famously talks about when he visited the studio. Uh, so there is an abject quality in those paintings as well, mm. which comes partially, I think, most manifestly performed in the Birkenau paintings, when he, for the first time, breaks gesture into smaller and smaller units. So there is no more gesture and there's no more facture. There's only a deposit, right? right? and a mechanical, almost mechanical deposit which starts with the squeegees. Second aspect of beauty is the chromatic order. The chromatic order seduces us to reconcile ourselves with the world, right? You see a Rothko painting and you see the color in a Rothko painting and you say there is a way to find a reconciliation with matter. There's a way to reconcile with space. There's a way to reconcile in a meditative approach with the world because the colors mediate you. You have a bodily presence by looking at a Rothko. That's what we call beauty. Mm. When I look at the Richter paintings, the colors are saccharine, the colors are glarious, glaring, the colors are streak, striking. They are all things together, but they're never resolute in a way that they reconcile you. They never give you the sense of being at home. So the material mediation that color performs is perpetually negated by Richter in the sense that he says, I will not give you a compensatory gratification by giving you chromatic satisfaction. He perpetually confronts you with the lie that chromatic satisfaction constitutes. Hmm. That is what I call the opposite of beauty, namely enlightenment. So can I press on you just a little bit there? <laughs> I'm curious if for you, because I was trying to think about beauty's dialectical other not being the enlightenment, but beauty's dialectical other being something more pedestrian like ugliness or the abject. 
And there is a way in which I never quite get over watching the footage of Richter painting, uh, kind of in his, you know, wearing a European outfit, not dissimilar to you, with no smock, no apron, no paint on his clothes, layering that squeegee with all that precision, and then basically going and smearing it like a, like there's something abject about the, the, the smearing. He always appears to be in control, and yet there's something I find always regressive in the smearing. And does that hold any dialectical tension for you with beauty in that regard? Because I don't know if I really, I mean, I find the colors beautiful. Maybe this means I'm not an Enlightenment subject. I'm probably not an Enlightenment subject. But does the smear, what is this? form of the technique and the application do around these, this problem for you? Anything? Yeah, lots. I mm -hmm. think obviously everybody looking at those paintings and looking at the process of working with the squeegee, the first question that people have is what happened to the liberatory forces of aleatory paint application after Jackson Pollock, right? So. We all grew up with this. Pollock was the absolute cult figure in West Germany as much as he was a cult figure in England or in France. And of course, the question of aleatory principle of paint distribution is one of the key challenges for all painters after Pollock, right? And Richter, of course, like his whole generation, was suspended between Barnard Newman and Jackson Pollock. And he knows very well that aleatory paint distribution can no longer claim the authenticity of the liberated unconscious. That myth has long been dismantled. Quite the opposite, he says, paint application in and of itself is a mechanical operation. So in many ways you could say he applies paint almost as positivistically in the sense of positivism of thinking as Robert Ryman, mm. right? He applies paint almost as controlled and as grotesque comical in its mechanicity as Neil Toroni, right? Mm. Gesture for him is as precarious and as disqualified as chromatic qualities, right? So he negates the gesture as he performs it with the mechanical device, but he performs it nevertheless as a gesture that can no longer acquire the same seduction that a gesture that promised the liberation of the unconscious in the work of post-automatist Pollock did. Right. So he tells us of painterly gestures and as he performs the end of painterly gesture through the mediation of a me mechanical device. That makes it also so interesting to see them, see him perform in the film, for example, what a pic, as he just described, it has something utterly alien about it, right? It's not a gesture of grandeur, it doesn't, not a gesture of liberation, it's not a gesture of like freedom, freedom at yeah. all. It's like somebody who executes an act of allegorical annihilation of the pretension that painting provides freedom. That's what is another qualification of beauty for me, if you want to go back to that term. Yeah, there is a kind of, I find when I watch, and I, I watched a lot of Richter painting as I was getting ready to talk to you, and I was blown away by what I found to be almost the clinical cruelty of the dismantling of the aleatory, of chance operations, mm. these things that I think we hold on to in art and and but I also began to see him as I began to see it as a kind of self-conscious performance and I wondered if some of the language of performativity and performance was something that you could think about in relationship to the fact that he clearly chose he allows himself to be filmed and he is wearing that outfit, and he knows what he looks like there. He's, he's in complete control of that image. And I'm curious, 
that's not, it's not benign. I think it's often offered to us as benign. Oh, mm -hmm. here's Gerhard Richter painting, and it's fantastic. But it felt to me like it. There's these moments he takes the squeegee down, he steps back. It's almost fake, I thought, the stepping back. And then he goes in and like does that thing mm. where he kind of, you know, attacks the painting. And you can see the residue of it, which is this moment of aggression. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, he's so conservative and polite. And then he's behaving like this in the studio. Mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, what do you make of all of that? Yeah. Um... He's not part of the historical tendency to spectacularize the act of painting in the way that Georges Mathieu did, for example, right? With right. Mathieu, it's already the grotesque comical play out or when you recognize it's the end of that historical tendency. But he is fully aware that this enactment of gesture, grandiose, grandiloquent, intense as it is, is inevitably contributing to the spectacularization of painting itself. Right. right. In the same way that if you think about Bruce Nauman, who is an artist that he admires endlessly, in the same way that Bruce Nauman introduced the performative operation in the production of sculpture, fully aware that this is at the threshold where sculpture could go this way or go this way, and he decided he would rather insist on making the actual tendencies the subject of the performance of the production of the sculpture itself. Right. That degree of self-referentiality is extraordinary in Richter's work as well. Right. So there is, he's not a clown in the way that Mathieu was a clown, but he is fully aware of the pending dangers that happen in singling out the gesture as an act of extreme visibility, right? So that's what he plays out when he allows right. himself to be recorded to do this. And I think it's visible in the intricacy of the painting itself that he knows full well, yes, this could be read this way, but it can also be read this way. So he, neg he negates the very inherent dynamics of gestural painting at all times. I have another question for you. If you only read one chapter of Benjamin's book, I would highly recommend that you read the chapter on Tisch, the 1962 painting. For those of you who forget, it's the painting of the, the table. It's a grisaille painting of a table, the central part of the table erased and smeared in gray paint. Reading this chapter, I felt like a kid again, Benjamin. Thank you, bud. A kid. I oh. felt like a kid reading art history for the first time. I was like, this shit is great. <laughs> so exciting. Nice. I really mean it. It really was. So your discussion of Richter's Tisch is a sort of famous, his famous first painting, the first grisaille, a mixture of abstraction and mimesis, this great table with a centrally placed obliteration or wiping out, a smearing or an erasing of the image. You read it at first as an attempt at producing a tabula rasa. Can one, you say, be unencumbered by memory and history? Uh, and then you say, one of the foundational aesthetic functions is to make visible and readable what has been withheld from comprehension and symbolization just in case you've forgotten why you love art. One of the foundational aesthetic functions is to make visible and readable what has been withheld from comprehension and symbolization. And then you go on to say something that I just loved. You said, quote, key paintings in the history of the 20th century art signal not just aesthetic change, but they announce and enact fundamental epistemological shifts. I'm gonna say that in a really simple way, you're gonna hate it. Basically, style is a kind of embedded knowledge, right? That like, you don't just change style, when the style changes, a new form of knowledge is being offered. 
So I find this a thrilling way to think about what art is and what art does in the world. Um, so I wanted to ask you a few questions about that. Do you believe this is the role of all art or only good art? Do artists do this intentionally or unintentionally? And or does your method, because this book is as much about your method as it is about Gerhard Richter's work. And this method is, of course, the negative dialectics of, a, of the Frankfurt School. Does your method produce or perform this knowledge into being? Is it somehow laying dormant? And we have this encounter with this aesthetic shift that is actually an epistemological offering in, because of the method? Um, that is a very difficult question. I don't think I would claim that much. I, for example, have, have had and have uh, extraordinary colleagues and friends in the field to whom I owe a lot, as mentioned Rosalind already, but I could also mention Ivan Ambois, could mention Hal Foster, your doctor father, right? And My me. doctor father, for those of you who missed the German there. <laughs> and so they write very differently and think very differently from the way I think. And um, it was quite wonderful when I arrived in 78 and Annette Michelson and Rosen Krauss welcomed me, for which I will be forever grateful, into their circles. We were completely in disagreement about many things. I'm not a formalist. I'm not basing my thinking on structural linguistics the way Bois and Krauss did. I'm really much more of an eclectic thinker. I have no model of writing or no clear, re clearly resolved method. So for me, what appealed to me was always the challenge to say, yes, but. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So I don't have a clear resolution in a methodological model which says painting works like a linguistic operation. Right? Yes, it does. But some paintings also fail to operate like linguistic operations and they operate like returns from somewhere else like that are not clearly manageable. Right? So Richter's Tisch is the quintessential example of this, you, call, you can, of course, deliver a wonderful formal analysis of the painting, which I try to do. But the fact that it's also a painting about repression is not accessible to a formalist analysis. And right. then what type of repression is that, right? right? So, and it doesn't have to be a psychoanalytic interpretation alone, which clearly is what Krauss has done better than anybody it has to be also locally specific. Right? Nobody in the world could have painted that painting except for an East German guy coming to West Germany in 1961 and facing international conditions of painting, seeing Andy Warhol for the first time in his life and saying, what am I going to do now? Right? Right. Right? And he's completely at a loss. And that's what's happening there. I mean, uh, Carol Ungaro, the extraordinary restorer once did a seminar on painting Tisch when it was still on loan at Harvard and she showed it to me under infrared and ultraviolet or whatever they do it was like, and I said god I'm such an idiot I've never seen this painting before it's extraordinarily messy painting there's layer after layer after layer of what Richter did to make this happen and you can really see how he struggled with this to become a painting about something that he could not depict, right? It is based on an image from Domus magazine, a stupid advertisement for a device, summer device, a table. And he clearly struggles with Rauschenberg at that time. He sees Rauschenberg for the first time at uh, a gallery, the Gallery 21, by Jean-Pierre Wilhelm, who was a uh, gay Jewish man who had returned from exile in Paris and had opened a gallery in Düsseldorf. And he showed Rauschenberg's uh, 
Dante portfolio for the first time. And Richter comes to Düsseldorf just at that moment when Jean-Pierre Wilhelm shows Rauschenberg the Dante drawings. And of course, he sees the erasure as an extraordinary process, but he has no clue what this is about, right? Mm. He's like monkey business imitating this. Right? He has no idea what this is, really. It's quite wonderful, as you're just saying, how do artists work? Artists do work differently from writers, and right. luckily. And he just takes this up and imitates it in the most naive way. And as he does this, as he absorbs the whole complicated operation of taking a photograph and erasing it at the same time, which he learns from Rauschenberg, he comes up with a locally specific, nation-state specific history painting, which is not at all in Rauschenberg's mind. I mean, Rauschenberg doesn't have to deal with what Richter deals with, right. but he applies the procedures of effacing the image and turns it into a memory image, which is not what I would call Rauschenberg's Dante drawings, but that is an instinct in right. transition or inter intersection, right? I'm, I'm no, I know it's a bit complicated, but it is a really complicated process because when you think about it, how naive he is when he comes in 61, he is a socialist realist painter who comes with an authoritarian baggage that doesn't allow him to do anything at all. And then he sees that work and he completely, like a kid, picks that up and says, okay, and he even writes about it. I quoted it at He writes a letter to Heinze in 61. And you read this letter and say, my God, this guy's an idiot. He says, they are cutting up photographs in America and I think they call it pop art. I think I will do that myself now. Right. Right? <laughs> That's literally a statement in the letter. Right. I mean, right. slightly paraphrased. So that is the moment of Tisch. And, and then we have to credit him being the extraordinary artist that he is out of this constellation to make a work like that, which is so unbelievably central, as you rightfully recognized, for basically beginning a whole new history of painting in Germany, right? Yeah. So um, I think we could go on, but it's, I'm glad you picked it up because I think it's just uh, one of those, certain paintings perform this type of work, so. But I just want to press a little more because we are both also Duchampians. We know that um, the viewer completes the work. Mm -hmm. You, we are more Duchampians than Richter. We are more Duchampian yeah. than we are Richter. Yeah. Yes, you. Then, I, then I mean, Richter me, is. definitely. Yeah. I don't, I'm not a Richter girl. Okay. I do Dumas, Toymans, Carrie James Marshall, Lisa Yaskovich. This guy's not my guy. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to have read this book because I, I zagged before I zigged. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I, I feel like I'm arriving. Uh, sort of late to this party. I had a willful uh, way in which I could not take it on. And I had to go toward the people of my own, closer to my own generation to figure out what painting would be for me. Um, but we are both Duchampians and I think we do both sort of believe a, the general Duchampian truism that the viewer completes the work. And you are quite a viewer for Richter. I mean, you, you have spent an enormous amount of your intellectual life in dialogue. And I feel very strongly as, as a result of reading the book that I, if that you and Richter are in the same volley, I'm dialectically moving between the two of you. I'm not quite sure I can separate you from Richter in a way, like the analysis is so trenchant and the view of the whole oeuvre is so devastating. Um, and so, I mean, part of me wants to ask what I fear is perhaps too personal a question, but I want to know if after spending 50 years with this work, was this what allowed you to understand your own Germanness, your own life in exile from your Mutterland, mm -hmm. from your mother tongue, from um, your own, whatever your own process of rapprochement with yourself as a German person in wake of the war? I mean, was this, was this how you were able to do your own memory work? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, great question. I mean, that's a difficult question. So, um, first of all, to answer the, sing the simple part, Richter and I have disagreed as much as we have agreed. Mm. Actually, I would say we disagree more often than we agree. And whatever I might claim, I'm not calling myself a Marxist, but I have read and been engaged with certain types of thinking of the left over the last 50 years, starting in 1968, which have defined my writing and my thinking in a major way, again and again, in different manners. And he has always loathed that. I mean, nothing could be further from Richter's mind than any sympathy for Marxist thinking. Right? Yeah. If you grew up in the DDR under state socialism, as he did, he had reasons to leave the country, and he, he loathes it. And if you talk to his wife, who's also grown up in the DDR, we still get into fights with her even more so, and, um, and with him. And for me, for example, the most important German artist of the 20th century is John Hartfield. When I say Hartfield to Richter, he says, my God, how can you possibly like this trash? Right. Right? Right. That's one moment where the conversation ends. And there are many moments when the conversation ends, right? When he mm. says, you are completely deluded in your ideas in the same way that the bottom line of people were completely deluded. And he offers them a grand monument of tragic delusion. Mm. That's what that is, right? So we don't agree on very many issues. We fight almost all the time when we used to talk more regularly than we do now on political issues. And um, so that has partially been a good basis for friendship, uh, paradoxically, right? Mm -hmm. And the same is true for, for talking about paintings often, right? Uh, there are painters that I intensely admire, Jasper Johns being the most prominent example. Jasper Johns for me is an absolute post-Duchampian centrality that I think about all the time. I cannot talk to him about Jasper Johns, he gets furious, right? So, and anyway, I'm digressing the question. Okay. Does it help me? Yes, I guess it has formed me deeply to say, here is a German artist that I can really recognize. There were not that many at that time. Uh, it's really only Richter and Polke and Palermo with whom I have a very strong historical bond before I left in 78. And um, does he do work that touches me on the level of what does it mean to have a historical, cultural identity of sorts, a broken one, a shattered one, a fake one, because it is reconstructed, because it is patched together. It's not the authenticity of an Italian identity that you might have had in the uh, 18th century, right? So it's a completely different concept of what cultural identity provides. Yes, he does offer that model, but then I would say, without pushing this too far, Bruce Nauman was for me just as important, uh. right? Or Daniel Beren was for me just as important, or most important for me was Lawrence Wiener. So to recruit an artist for the formation of your own cultural, historical, nation-state-based identity is not a legitimate claim that I would want to make for too long. Mm. It contributes to it, but it's not a foundational experience in the way you made it sound just now, mm. Mm. if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. All right, this is my last question before I... Um We'll open it for some questions from the audience. And so it's, well, it's a long one. The only person I will quote from your book other than you, you quote Samuel Beckett. I can't go on. I must go on. So here we are at Gerhard Richter's retirement, your retirement, Mazel Tov. So you both have had a lifetime of negotiating all of the staggering losses that the 20th century has had to offer, all of the ambivalence of being a subject under capitalism. 
And I guess I wonder if there's a way you can think the intensity of Adorno's dialectics with the Freudian or even Melanie Klein, the Kleinian version of loss, this first primal loss that we all share, which is, of course, the loss of the maternal, the loss that all other losses are based upon. Uh, and I guess I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about the unconscious a little bit, <laughs> which, as we know from Freud, is not structured ever as either or, but the conjunction that organizes the unconscious is and, a kind of iterative uh, version of the unconscious. And I wanted to ask you if there was something in the end, and you are, of course, more than any other critic, you are associated with the, with the so-called death of painting, with the, the, the sense that somehow this event structure we call painting that's 600 years old is over. And yet, your dialectical thinking in which you rock, 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 I can't help but think of it as being sort of parallel to psychoanalysis's ambivalence, a kind of perpetual uh, andness in which the either or, you know, in which you don't get stuck in your unconscious. And I guess really like what I want to ask you is in the end, and in the end, um, I hear the Beatles in my head, in the end, is there something specific about painting as a medium that allows it to produce such contradictory meanings simultaneously. Like, is this part of painting's gestalt? And that has made it available not only to Richter, but to you, and or, are we always in some kind of relation of belatedness? You know, like right now, you and I are sitting here in a belated way in relationship to gender. But you have a very, a sense that Richter arrives in a belated relation to painting's form. So there's this sense in which we are always inhabiting these very old forms, whether we want to or not, with intentionality or not. And I guess at the end of the book, I wondered, is it possible that between Richter's paintings and your analysis of his paintings, that the two inextricably combined for me, actually then became the cultural, that the work you were both doing was actually the cultural and intellectual work of keeping painting quite alive. Okay. <laughs> um, I just had to look up this is incidentally, I wasn't planning to make this an homage of that level, but I just had to look up a quote in Rosalind Krauss's book, The Optical Unconscious. And um, I realized she gave me a dedication in the copy that she gave me at the time. And she said, for Benjamin Bouclot, for whom nothing is unconscious, but many things are optical. <laughs> 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 and I realized 30 years after she gave me that book, I think it's 30 years ago that you published it, what a fool I was because I proudly read this as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now I read it as a clear-cut insult. <laughs> so, yes, I think your question goes in a similar direction. <laughs> Is my repressive apparatus so strong that I cannot recognize the absolute extraordinary beauty of the liberation of the unconscious that Richter's painting provides? I didn't ask that question. I just wanted <laughs> noted for the rector that that was not the question I just okay. asked. <laughs> okay, then I misunderstood you, perhaps. Please, go ahead, answer that question anyway. Um, does painting reconcile us is part of your question. Or did I misunderstand it completely? Does painting allow us access to the lost mother? 
That's how you started out, right? Does it provide us a space of an uncanny inhabitation of that what we have lost? Or does Is it that allow what us? No? Yeah, that's the like deepest, hardest version, which of course you can eviscerate that version right. of it. I would like to. I, <laughs> I will let you. But first, I want to clarify. Does it... Is there something about painting as a medium that actually permits a degree of ambivalence in its gestalt, a degree of its presentation, almost all great painting, it seems to me, is, a contra is in contradiction with itself. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be, I can imagine, in another space-time continuum, there's a Benjamin Buclo who says, Painting is the most important medium because it's the one that permits perpetual contradiction with itself. Mm -hmm. But you never say that. Instead, you say things like, well, Picasso did this in 1921, making it impossible for anybody to do anything else after that. You, you, you're always chipping away at the medium. And I got to the end of your book and thought, painting is like one of the greatest knowledge engines ever made. Mm -hmm. Well, I think painting by nature and certainly painting by its historical status or situatedness is a system of deception and false compensation. And whenever that can be clarified by painterly means or by critical means, I think that is one task that we have as writers or as artists, right? Artists in their best drive operate against deception. Artists in their most extraordinary motivations undo false cultural compensation, right? And as much as painting can provide that, great painters undo that, and Gerhard does that. The greatest painter other than Gerhard that I know, as I said before, is Robert Ryman or Onkabara, right? So not a single grain of painterly intention in Onkabara's work provides you with the deception or the compensation for experiences of a fraudulent reality. And that's what Gerhard does. And mm -hmm. mysteriously, and that's why he is so unusual, he does that with painterly means, yeah. without reducing it in the way that Ryman or Onkawara reduces it. And it brings back a wonderful sentence by Lawrence Wiener after an opening of an exhibition by Gerhard many, many years ago. Lawrence gave a toast to Gerhard and he said, well, I have to congratulate Gerhard Richter because he is the one example that shows that it is still also possible to do what he does paint. But basically said it's impossible. And from Lawrence's perspective, of course, it was an absolutely unacceptable practice. But he said, Richter is the one example that shows us that you can possibly still do what he does. And I thought that was a beautiful description from a conceptual artist of the painterly condition as a precarious operation that has to perpetually challenge itself, perpetually undo itself to remain credible and not provide fraudulent compensation or deception. And that's, I think, is perhaps to go back to your initial question, truth value. And if truth value can be called beautiful, then I'm willing to call it beautiful. I'm going to let that sit right there. Thank you. Thank you. Would anyone in this wonderful audience like to ask Benjamin a question? Rosalind. <laughs> well, Helen, I thought you asked a very interesting opening question, which had to do with what, uh, these antinomies that Benjamin uh, develops. And you asked, what is the opposite of beauty? I think to kind of think about that, we need to go back to Kant and the uh, critique of aesthetic judgment, where the opposite of beauty is the sublime. And the sublime is basically a kind of something that surpasses the possibility of our grasping it, because it is about infinity. 
And it seems to me also that we could think about Richter and the base and the, the sort of photographic basis of his painting as a, something that, and, the, and the way the paint is layered on top of that photographic substratum, you know, as a, a way of destroying the idea of the gestalt. And the gestalt is what holds together the beautiful, which the sublime disintegrates. Mm. I mean, I think that somehow that opposition in Kant helps us think about Richter. Thank you. Oh, that's really useful. Thank you. And Freud, you know, dream work requires a sort of process of uh, identifying the manifest content and the latent content. And the way of the memory work that Richter kind of provides to the viewer, this kind of also presents a way of working through memory and the forgetting. Yes, I, I'm always very cautious when somebody, I'm not saying you do, but I'm always very cautious when people short-circuit psychoanalytic concepts and artistic procedure. Obviously, they are connected and they are sharing certain motivations in certain forms, but I don't think uh, an artist performs dream work, right? Or an artist doesn't perform um, recuperation or restoration. It's a, I think it's a much more complicated uh, situation. So, and the spectator of a work of art has, of course, the option to choose which way she wants to look at the painting, whether the painting should reconstitute historical experience or whether the painting should or could reconstitute mnemonic experience or the painting can reconstitute forms of libidinal liberation. But there's a whole spectrum that painting supplies or offers to every spectator. And I would not want to pinpoint and say, that's what a painting does. I think a painting does, if it's a great painting or it's a good work of art or an important work of art or a functional work of art, it does offer the spectator a whole range of possibilities. And uh, so dream work is one analog analogy that's fine. Uh, memory is another. Uh, uncovering something else. I mean, there are many, many. I wouldn't want it to be reduced to a psychoanalytic concept of dream work and then redemption. I think it's a much more complicated process. That's yeah. all I can answer, so. We have the same question. Lisa and Matvey have the same question. He, he was more complicated. Um, I was gonna ask, you said several times how much he finds Jasper Johns annoying or doesn't like Jasper Johns. But Maffei said, why, why Rauschenberg? Yeah, yes. Why, why yes to Rauschenberg and no to Jasper Jones? I mean, I find that and just love to know. I can't answer. I don't know. I've asked him. Not, he, he won't answer the question? No. What do you think might be the answer? I mean, just as a guess. Well, Johns has put painting on the level of linguistic intelligence. John's more than anybody in the important part of John's, the first 20 years of his art, has shifted painting onto a level of comprehension, of legibility, of linguistic intelligence, as I just said, that is very much against what Richter does, right? Richter is almost a Nietzschean artist, a Dionysian Nietzschean artist by comparison to John's. And I think that's what he cannot handle. That degree of absolutely American, almost positivist intelligence in Johnson's work of the first 20 years in particular, right? So that's why I said as a joke when I came in, I think this is an absolute stunning painting. I mean, it was a joke, but my first thing was to say, this is like a total negation of the intelligence of the white flag, right? It undoes the white flag on, it tries to undo the white flag on every level. But of course it doesn't succeed, but it's a clear, desperate response to say, I want to retain one dimension of painting, which is, now I'm going back on my own terms, but that's what Richter does to you. I want to redeem, I want to sustain, I want to remedy, I want to maintain, I don't know what it is, the drive, the unconscious, Dionysiacal, the dream, the rage that Johnson's positivism has prohibited, right? You cannot have a question about 
looking at the white flag by Jasper Johns and talk about the unconscious. There's no unconscious there, literally. There's only an extraordinary defiance of all the false claims with which surrealism and the abstract expressionism had endowed the painterly practices, right? That's the undoing that Johns performs. And Richter cannot handle this. It doesn't want to accept it because he clearly wants to maintain, paradoxical, paradoxical as it is, that painting does what Helen has just so beautifully described, a process of unfathomable processes of unconscious experience, right? And we don't want to necessarily name them. I listed a few, there are many, many others. And that's, I think, one explanation. So Rauschenberg is much more easily handleable, manageable for Richter. He certainly done the drawings. He never said he liked the white paintings, for example. I don't think he would. Right. Um, right. And so that's one answer that I can try. Thank you. I think there was another hand in the back there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. It's a wonderful conversation. Um, I wanted to try to connect, Helen, your people to this conversation. My people? Your people, who my, you called your crew. Your my crew. crew. Um, that, that you said paintings announce and enact uh, fundamental shifts in knowledge. And do you think that that's a one-time shift in knowledge, or do these works also work on an ongoing basis to enact ongoing shifts in knowledge? Because obviously knowledge has shifted quite a bit in the past 50 years, 60 years. You know, that's such a great question because I myself have written that question down in the book to ask Benjamin. Um, I wrote lots of different questions for Benjamin and one of them was, um, I mean, Benjamin does this really star turn on Tish in particular. And I was curious whether or not you thought that reading that you make of Tish, like, does it stand I mean, it's a, it's a false question in a way. Does it stand in perpetuity? But can you Im imagine the way in which these pictures... I mean, one of the things that I come away with reading Benjamin's book is that these pictures are really a kind of devastating analysis of the losses and failures of the 20th century, as the 20th century sort of peters out mm -hmm. um, in all of the ways we, we know that it breaks so many promises with an enlightenment past, um, holding in parentheses the spectacularly fucked up nature of the enlightenment. So what I wondered, like, would these paintings and your analysis of them, which for me are now inextricable, would they come to sort of stand in for an accounting of a 21st century subject's understanding of the 20th century? Um, you know, is, is that partly what this work will mean? Because in reading them in real time, I read you as a critic struggling in real time with the painting of your time. But as I tried to imagine what, what this book could mean 50 and 100 years from now, because I think it, it's more than criticism, I think it has the force that it will extend over time. And these pictures, I assume, are also going to be with us for the next hundred years too. Will, will Tish mean something else in 50 years? I, d I, don't, I don't know, and then that's how I hear your question. Like, would the, does the painting continue to offer us an epistemological shift, a, a form of knowledge? Or is the painting, does the painting become a kind of message in a bottle of the knowledge of the past? And that's, you know, there's that great line in Kubler that art historians are like astronomers. You know, we deal in the present with something that happened a very long time ago, right? Mm. Like, what, you know, what is the force of it? Is, it? is it our reckoning? Or does the painting continue to move and shape and shift its own sense of knowledge as it moves forward? I don't, I don't know what you think about that. I, mm -hmm. I'm at a... I, I mean, I only can think such things in my middle age. This was not a question I had as a younger person. So I don't know what, how it works for you. I literally can't, I can't answer that either. It's a very great question. I mean, will it be as important as a Picasso collage from 1912? 
let's say, the first papier collé, right, which reverberates ever and ever and ever with new meaning for all of us. Will it have that status? I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, it does. It might, but I'm not sure. I don't know. And, um, will it have the same degree of consequences that um, Target with plaster casts has? I think it does. Mm. And will it have reverberations like um, the urinal? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Said like two old Duchampians <laughs> up on stage. Yeah, yeah, the urinal. I mean, the whole category falls apart. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like what are you going to do? Right. So that's the price you have to pay when you want to be beneficiary of being a painter, that you relativize your historical importance after all. Right. I think I'm going to say thank you all so much for being here and Benjamin. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time. <laughs>